It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, April 5th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Coming to you live from Washington, D.C. in the Tony Snow Studios at the Fox News Bureau here in our nation's capital. Very happy to have you along every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. That's when we air live. If you can't catch us during that time frame, we also have a podcast that is free of charge each and every day. GuyBensonShow.com. GuyBensonShow.com. For all of your program needs, it's right there. Here's the lineup on today's show. KT McFarland will be joining us later this hour to analyze the situation in Ukraine. Looking forward to that conversation. Congressman Michael Waltz, Republican of Florida, will also be back here. I want to ask him about Ukraine and a few other things, particularly about the United Nations. My childhood friend and CEO of the Babylon Bee, Seth Dillon, he's going to be here. Reacting to the news that Elon Musk, this broke yesterday, has become the biggest single shareholder in Twitter and apparently has joined the board and wants to make some changes in a pro-free speech direction, which would be very welcome. Seth's company, the Babylon Bee, their account is currently suspended for their satire. We'll get into that. Plus, Juan Williams. Later, in the back half of our final hour, we will talk about a number of things, including, I would imagine, the Supreme Court nomination and the confirmation vote that's expected this week. Gosh, I wonder if Juan and I might disagree on some things. We'll find out. Stay tuned for that. Let's actually begin today's show on that subject in that vein, because there was some breaking news this morning on Capitol Hill. There was a vote of 53 to 47 in the U.S. Senate to advance the nomination of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson out of the committee and onto the Senate floor. Now, this had happened before, actually happened with Clarence Thomas, where if there's a tied, evenly divided Judiciary Committee and there is therefore a tied vote in the Judiciary Committee, it takes the majority of the Senate to then take a separate floor vote to discharge that nomination from the committee, which would be otherwise stalled, onto the full Senate floor. And that's exactly what happened. Now, what's the significance of 5347? Why am I mentioning that? Because if you know the math, if you're a political nerd like I am, you know that it's a 50-50 Senate. And it didn't require the vice president to come in and break the tie earlier because three Republicans – Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Mitt Romney of Utah voted with the Democrats to move this nomination forward. And all three of those Republican senators have also announced, two of them announcing after we got off the air last evening, that they will be voting in favor of the confirmation when that vote arrives either Thursday or Friday as well. So this was kind of today almost a test vote, a preview. Might there be One or two other Republicans out there who could cross the aisle. It looks like the answer is no. It looks like the outcome is now baked in 
53-47 was the proxy vote today. And in all likelihood, 53 to 47 will be the vote a day or two from now. When Judge Jackson is confirmed, she'll become Justice Jackson when she takes the bench. That would be after the current term because Justice Breyer doesn't retire until this summer. Now, I have a few thoughts on Senators Romney and Murkowski announcing their yes votes on Jackson last night, joining Senator Collins on the Republican side. And, of course, teaming up with all 50 Democrats. I will get to those thoughts in a moment. But before we do that, because I actually think some of you might disagree with my take on that. We'll come back to it. But first, I want to take a moment to and I'm trying to figure out the best way to frame this, honestly, because I don't want to make it seem like I'm just doing a big told you so victory lap like attention, everyone. Look how smart I am. That's not the point of this. This is not an endeavor of I told you so. This is more of a value-added affirmation for our listeners. I want you to know, and I want to be able to point to concrete evidence. I don't make a lot of predictions here. I don't know if you've noticed that. I don't go out on a limb with a bunch of hot takes, predicting stuff left and right. I try to bring sound analysis, good commentary, some entertainment. But when I do make predictions, if I get them wrong, then, and if I get just, you know, a fact wrong or something, I correct myself. I've done that here. It's not my favorite thing to do, but I do it. In this case, there's been a lot of heat around this nomination, although a lot of it to me seems a little bit synthetic, kind of just like a a trumped up phony outrage from both sides because it's, you know, it's a confirmation fight, Supreme Court, this is how things go. But there's been some punditry with a lot of scorching takes. And in this case, in my case, I want to just reinforce for you that from the beginning, I kind of called this exactly right. And yes, I'm sort of patting myself on the back a little bit, but I want to reinforce hopefully one of the reasons that you all listen to this show, that I'm not just pulling stuff out of my rear end and saying exactly what I want to happen or what you want to hear. I try, certainly in the prediction category and the serious analysis category, to look at the the dynamics at play, look at the relevant situation and math and likelihoods and background and context, and then bring you good information. So I happened to be on the air live on Fox News on Outnumbered. I was co-hosting that day in New York in late January of this year when the news broke that Justice Breyer would be leaving at the end of this term. So we blew out the entire show. We had like six or seven segments planned with a bunch of topics, news of the day, politics. That all went right out the window. And we went wall to wall, no commercial breaks for an hour, noon to one that day. And I was in sort of the virtual center seat. We brought in guests from the outside. Brett Bayer joined. Jonathan Turley joined, if I recall correctly. But they came to me pretty early on. This was within minutes of the vacancy being announced or reported. And over the course of a few answers that I gave in that hour, I said, number one, Joe Biden promised as a candidate to pick a black woman. 
under these circumstances. So it's going to be a black woman. He's going to keep that campaign promise for a number of political reasons. He wants to get on the better side and the good side of the base again. They've been very frustrated. Build Back Better had just failed. So this was an easy layup for him with base politics. I also said at the time that I thought that this fight would be relatively low octane, not crazy. And look, we've seen some of it and we've seen the allegations and the pushback and the finger pointing and all of that. Fine. But this has not been unusual. This has not been over the top. I know The Washington Post tried to pretend this is even worse and more scandalous than what the Democrats did to Kavanaugh. No one actually believes that. I don't think they even believe that. Brett Bayer was here yesterday. He said on the show, I don't know what they were watching if they actually believe that. This was kind of a run-of-the-mill confirmation process, especially in the hyper-partisan modern era. So I said it'll be relatively low-octane. Whoever the nominee is will get all the Democratic votes and probably a few Republican votes, and she will be confirmed. And then the very next day, I wrote a piece at townhall.com where I laid out a few more of these predictions in more detail, including this one. I said Biden is going to serve up the sort of nominee he promised. The left will feel good about how progressive they are. And the nominee will be confirmed. I said in this piece, quote, if I had to bet on the identity of the nominee, I would put my money on this woman. And I linked to a story about Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who was a Breyer clerk and who was recently installed on the D.C. Circuit on a bipartisan vote. Shades of the Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett paths combined. So I looked at the relatively short list of black women who would fit the bill, who would be realistic picks. And for a number of reasons and those connections, my money was on KBJ. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, she was the nominee. I know some Democrats and liberals at the time were saying, oh, what's Manchin going to do? What's cinema going to do? And I said, look, they are crosswise with the base. They don't want to be at all times. They want to pick their spots. This is an easy one. Both of them vote for all of Biden's judges. They're not going to stick their neck out and vote against a Supreme Court nominee. That will 100 percent get someone like Cinema primaried beyond all the other stuff they're mad at. So I said they will have unanimity, all 50 of them. And Manchin and Cinema will say, see, we really are on the team. It's a no brainer here for them. Plus, the stakes are pretty low. It was going to be one progressive swapped out for another. The balance of the court six to three wouldn't change. That was another dynamic at play that informed this analysis. And then finally, I wrote this again. This was within 24 hours of the vacancy being reported. Quote, some Republican moderates will likely seek to burnish their cross-partisan credentials by voting in favor of a qualified nominee with whom they have some ideological differences, especially given the aforementioned low stakes. Susan Collins, I'll note, has never voted against a Democratic president's Supreme Court nominee. She touted that point in announcing her courageous pro-Kavanaugh vote in 2018. She'll want to emphasize that point again here, I'd guess. Then I wrote this prediction, and I said this on the air to all of you as well. 
I put the over-under, sort of a sports betting term, I put the over-under on yes votes on this yet unnamed nominee at 52, and I might take the over. I said that may rankle some conservatives, but it's my analysis of what is going to happen. So on the day she was picked, or not even picked, from the day that there was a vacancy reported, not even formally announced, long before she was picked, actually, I said it's going to be not that dramatic of a fight. The likeliest nominee is going to be Katanji Brown-Jackson. All the Democrats are going to vote for her for all these reasons. And you'll get two, maybe three Republicans to go along. And here we are, a day or two away from all of those things coming to pass. And the vote this morning in the Senate, I think, is basically the tell that this breakdown that I brought to you all back in January was accurate and prescient. And it's not because I have some sort of like special insight. In this case, it's just a subject matter that I know a fair amount about. And with all the noise out there and speculation, maybe he'll pick Kamala Harris to get her off the presidential ticket. And she fits. I was like, let's clear out the noise. Let's cut through that and let's get to what's real. And I think in this case, we did a pretty good job of it. And I hope, even if you're not happy with the outcome here, and of course I'd rather have a conservative justice put on there, I hope you can appreciate what we bring to you on this program. Now, when we come back, what do I think of Romney, Murkowski, Collins joining the Democrats and furnishing three Republican votes for this nominee? I will tell you when we return. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. So last evening, Mitt Romney of Utah puts out this statement. After reviewing Judge Jackson's record and testimony, I've concluded that she is a well-qualified jurist and a person of honor. While I do not expect to agree with every decision she may make on the court, I believe she's more than uh, meeting the standard of excellence and integrity. I therefore congratulate Judge Jackson on her expected confirmation and look forward to her continued service to our nation. So Romney puts that out last evening. Lisa Murkowski announcing the same decision, joining Susan Collins of Maine, who had done it days prior. And as I pointed out back in January and then again in the last segment, Susan Collins has never voted against a Democratic president's Supreme Court nominee. She did vote against Amy Coney Barrett, actually, and that's a separate issue, and that goes into some politics and standards back in 2016. She had her reasons. She was also up for re-election, a tough re-election, which she won in Maine, and he needed to show some independence. So I cut her some slack on that vote. Murkowski was against Kavanaugh, which I thought was not as forgivable, but then she came around and voted yes on Amy Coney Barrett. Murkowski did. So... You know, there were some things at play there. And ultimately, the most important vote that Susan Collins had cast was for Kavanaugh. I mean, that was going to be a razor thin margin after that disgraceful circus. And she came out like an adult and gave a really important speech announcing that she was a yes. So she gets a ton of credit in my book for that. And in this case, the stakes are much lower 
and she has generally been a yes on a lot of Democratic judges, particularly SCOTUS nominees, all of them that she's faced in her time in the Senate. And so I was not surprised by that at all. That's very on brand for Susan Collins. Lisa Murkowski, a little bit unpredictable. Again, I was not a fan of what she did on Kavanaugh. I was glad that she voted for Amy Coney Barrett. Then you've got Romney. And honestly, I'm not surprised that he is voting yes on Jackson. I'm not even that upset about it. I'm not. This process, judicial confirmations, have become so toxic and poisonous. A lot of that, for reasons that we've explained ad nauseum on the air, I've written about it, is because Democrats over and over again have escalated unilaterally with very nasty campaigns of personal destruction, character assassination, new power grabs to accommodate whatever their immediate political interest might be, just really ruthless expediency. They've done that over the course of decades. Republicans then sort of hold them to their own standards. But in almost every case, over and over, it's been the Democrats drawing first blood, taking the first punch, taking that next step, pushing the boundaries even further. And at some point, some senators have to transcend that trend into pure partisanship on this stuff. We were grateful, at least I was certainly, when Joe Manchin voted yes on Kavanaugh. That was a big one back in 2018. He was the only one, by the way. I know Democrats, oh, we can't believe only three Republicans are voting for this incredibly talented, qualified judge, Judge Jackson, only three. You know how many Democrats voted for Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett combined? One. Kavanaugh got one. Barrett got zero. Neil Gorsuch got three. So this is part of a trend that the Democrats largely have set. But you need some senators on both sides who are willing to buck that trend and take consequential votes and allow some of the traditions to move forward. Because I think the toxicity that is now the current status quo and expectation is not healthy. So I wasn't that mad at Romney over this particular vote. I've got other issues with him, like not endorsing Mike Lee for re-election. Separate story. We'll turn to Ukraine with Katie McFarland next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Very appreciative that you listen every day. 3 to 6 Eastern, GuyBensonShow.com. If you want the free podcast or other information as well, we are joined once again by Katie McFarland now, former Trump Deputy National Security Advisor. She has served under four different presidents. She's author of the book Revolution Trump Washington and we the people. KT, welcome back to the show. Always a pleasure to be with you, Guy. Thank you for having me. You bet. So I want to start with this. Last time we spoke, actually, it was in February, and it was early in the week that culminated, I believe on that Wednesday, with the invasion of Ukraine by Putin. And when we spoke, it was either Monday or Tuesday leading up to the invasion you were here and you were predicting that the invasion wasn't going to happen. And, and you were not alone in that. A lot of experts looked at it and said, ultimately, this is probably not something that Putin wants to do. It's not his interest. He'd rather do X, Y and Z. And then uh, in a lot of respects, he, he shocked many people by 
launching that full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I wonder, looking back on it now, what was his calculation, do you think, at the time that so many people maybe missed or weren't picking up on? And do you think he regrets the calculation that he made? Well, you know, I was right and I was wrong. I mean, I was wrong in the sense I didn't think Putin was dumb enough to invade. I thought he could get what he wanted without invading. Um, and I was right that it was would not be a very good idea if he invaded Ukraine. Look, I think he had three plans, and I think he's working on plan C now. But plan A was mass troops along the border, make a lot of noise and racket, assuming that the Ukrainians would kind of give him a little bit, if not a lot, of what he wanted just to have him go away. That didn't work. So plan B was to have a blitzkrieg invasion of Ukraine, capture Kiev in three days, and then kick out the Zelensky government and put in place a puppet pro-Russian government. That didn't happen because the Ukrainians said what nobody thought they would do. Now, it's a pretty part of this. They've been a pretty corrupt and incompetent government um, and a corrupt and incompetent country in a lot of ways. But they turned out to this is their finest hour. So now Putin's on plan C, which is he's just going to siege him to death. And war crimes accusations, horrible stuff that's happening, he's just going to starve them out. Um, there maybe is a deal there. I thought even a week ago, as much as a week ago, there might have been a compromise solution where neither country gets what it wants, but it gets enough that they could spin it to their own population so that they would stop fighting. And I thought that would be a really good thing for Ukraine because in the ensuing years, say if there's a ceasefire, no more fighting, um, and what would happen in the next five or six years when Putin would presume that he could rebuild his military and come back, because Putin will come back. He'll come back for the rest of it if he doesn't get it all now, is that Ukraine could be built up with much closer relations with the West, economic relations, military buildup, and that the Russians are going to just have a horrible decade in front of them. Nobody's going to invest in them. Nobody's going to trade with them. And so over time, Ukraine's relative position would get stronger. And the important thing would be to buy time. I don't know what's going to happen now, Guy. You know, when President Biden makes all of these supposed gaps, but they won't be read as gaps in Moscow, that Putin's got to go, he's a war criminal, all which is true. But what does that do to the mindset of Putin, who's already miscalculated very badly? Does he decide, well, what the heck? I might as well go for broke. I might as well just be a brutal person to these, you know, brutal, to have just brutal atrocities to the Ukrainian people. Because amazingly, Guy, this is playing really well at home for Putin. Yeah, because they don't really, in many cases, know what's happening. And there are so many reports of Ukrainians and other people calling relatives and friends in Russia to tell them what's happening in Ukraine. And they just simply don't believe them. They're like, oh, that can't be true. They've brainwashed you. When, in fact, it's the Russians who are being fed a pack of lies and a bunch of brainwashing about the disaster befalling the Russian military in Ukraine. Do you think, because you know, you've got the military failures here, there's also just like the geopolitical calculation that Putin has made. He's kind of exposed not just his military, but his government as incredibly hollowed out, weak, incompetent. Most people, again, were expecting, okay, here's the invasion. This will be over tragically in two or three days. Uh, that, of course, here we are weeks and weeks later. It hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. The Ukrainians have actually regained some of their territory. Has Putin, in this broader miscalculation, also weakened himself by exposing 
to outside eyes exactly how weak Russia is in its current state? You know, I would have said yes about, until a couple of days ago. But by all indications, Putin has consolidated his position. Early in the war, there were a lot of people in the elites, in the inner circle, in the um, um, in the, and not only in the oligarchs, but the rich guys in, who run things in Russia, they, they were very hesitant. They thought, oh, this isn't going to work out very well. But once the sanctions started happening against individuals, and particularly when Joe Biden says Putin's got to go, Putin has been able to spin this to his people um, as, oh, my gosh, the whole world is out to get us. See, the whole world has always been out to get us. It's always been Russia against the world. And now look what they're doing. They won't even let Russian opera singers sing anywhere in the world. So they're punishing you, the Russian people. So he's managed to do kind of a mind meld with Vladimir Putin and the Russian people. So the Russian people, instead of being mad at Putin for all the terrible stuff and the lives that they're going to have for the next decade, which would be really crummy, they're now blaming the West as if this is some kind of, you know, they're all out to get the West. And Putin can have enough evidence particularly with the talk, tough talk of Biden, tough talk, but no delivery of President Biden. So this is working for him at home. That's the worst of all possible worlds. He will now be emboldened at home. The Chinese will buy his stuff, his oil and natural gas. India will buy his oil and natural gas. And so I'm very concerned that he has no reason now, no incentive to go to a negotiating table. So why not go for a break? So if the world is already saying, you're committing war crimes. We're going to frog march you out of the Kremlin and into the international criminal courts and maybe hang you at the end. If you're Vladimir Putin. You don't have a lot of incentives. I'm not saying that, that everybody's wrong. He is a war criminal. He has been in charge of a terrible botched invest and invasion, but also even more importantly, crimes against humanity. But I just want to get this guy out of there and get him to stop doing it and take care of Vladimir Putin, have his own people take care of him five years from now. I do wonder, is the bump that he's getting, and it's playing well at home, is that short-lived? Is it sustainable? Because ultimately, the deaths are the deaths, and the body bags are mounting. I mean, the number of deaths and, and casualties in his army have been staggering. If they continue to lose more ground and more people, and the sanctions continue, uh, wreaking havoc on the Russian economy, even though they're going to get propped up by others— I mean, is this something that the Russian people are going to say, oh, yes, you know, we'll keep supporting this status quo what, month after month after month? I just don't know. I mean, I, you know, I've watched Vladimir Putin since the 1990s when he wrote his graduate dissertation um, at the St. Peter, Petersburg School for Mines talking about bringing oil and natural gas companies under the control of the state and using them to make Russia rich again. I just don't know where this goes. And that's what terrifies me. I mean, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I've worked going back to the Nixon administration. I was in the Reagan administration and, and I've seen crises after crises. This is one where I just don't know where it goes. And I'm very worried that Vladimir Putin backed into a corner becomes crazy man and thinking, well, I'm not going to go down and I'm going to take everybody with me. And now I have no incentive to be a good guy because good guys finish last in his mind. I, I just well, he's he's never been a good guy, right? But he, he could go like, you know, he's horrible. Yeah, next levels Give him of an evil. Off -ramp, though. Give him an off-ramp because he has the ability to wreck horrible devastation on Europe and on the world. And that's what I'm concerned about, that there's very little off-ramp. And 
to the extent that we're talking to the Ukrainians and building them up, which we should, but then give them the stuff. We're not giving them the weapons that they need to defend themselves by themselves. I mean, we're making, we, especially President Biden, make a lot of lofty speeches. We're going to help them do this, do that. But the stuff they've promised hasn't arrived. And then the stuff that the Ukrainians need isn't coming. So, you know, let's find it. I, I just don't see that anybody's working on a solution here that lets everybody go home and then lets time take care of this, time and economics take care of it. You know, I, I mean, I, would, I just keep thinking that I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night and Joe Biden is going to say, here's my three-part plan. I'm going to go to the American people and I'm going to say, look, that Green New Deal, that war on fossil fuels, I'm putting that on hold for a couple of years. I'm going to encourage American oil and natural gas industries. Not just talk about it, but actually let it happen. And two, go to the Europeans and say, we've got your back. We are going to provide you with all the energy you need. It may not happen within six months, but it'll start happening within a year. You can get off of Russian energy. And then to go to Vladimir Putin and say, look, we are not just going to be energy independent. We're going to be energy dominant. And what that means is American energy fuels the world. And we, our private companies, can make a profit if oil and natural gas are 40, 50, I mean, oil is 40 $50 a barrel. The Russians can't do this. And for the last 50 years of Russian history, when energy prices have been high, oil especially, the Russians, before that the Soviet Union, they rebuilt their military, they had proxy wars around the world, and they invaded their neighbors. When energy prices were low, the Russians hunkered down because they didn't have any of the excess cash. Right now, the Russians, even with all the sanctions, they're pulling in a billion dollars a day. You can fight a lot of wars with a billion dollars a day. Yeah, although whatever they've done in modernizing and building up their military obviously didn't work. It seems like a lot of that money went somewhere else. And that's part of the problem when you have a you know kleptocracy, basically, as your country. You can say, here's all this money going to the military. It ends up lining the pockets of some rich people. Then you actually decide to fight a war, and you can't even put you know fuel in your tanks for days on end and, and feed your people while their you know their bodies are lying uh, you know, on enemy territory, not being collected. I mean, they've they've really been humiliated on that front. We'll see how things go in the East. It seems like that's their new focus. I want to ask you this, KT McFarland, because you followed Russia a long time, as you just mentioned, serving over the course of four different presidential administrations. You've also been keeping an eye on China. What do you think Chairman Xi and his close advisors are thinking as they watch what's happening in Ukraine both in terms of Russia and also in terms of the West. What is the Chinese interpretation and the Chinese lessons being derived from what's happening right now? Well, you're good to ask because that's really the most important question. The Chinese have used the Russians as their stalking horse. This has not gone well militarily. So the Chinese, whatever military ambitions they had, military ambitions towards Taiwan, I think they're rethinking it. Maybe what are our economic conditions? What are our you know, how else can we get what we really want, which is Taiwan under Chinese control? But number two, China is the world's largest consumer of imported energy. So they're now cutting deals with the Russians to get bargain basement prices for a 40-year, 50-year supply of oil and natural gas. India is doing the same thing. The other thing is, is that China has been remarkably silent on the international stage. You know, initially they were pro-Russia. And then when it wasn't going so well, they were on the fence. Now they're kind of coming back a little bit pro-Russia. My assumption is that the Chinese have concluded that 
that the Russians will eventually prevail, even if they have to kill an awful lot of people and destroy every city in Ukraine to do so. But the Chinese have been, for a country that for the last 10 years has wanted to say, look at me, look at me, We're, I'm the most, you know, China's the most powerful country in the world. We're going to run the 21st century. You've hardly heard a peep out of them right now. And that's because I think they're sitting and waiting for the dust to settle. Very quickly, last question. We had Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg on the show yesterday, and he said one of the concerns he has, he thinks that the Russians have already lost the war strategically. But in terms of getting to an actual resolution and conclusion, he doesn't know exactly who would be an effective intermediary where Zelensky and Putin could actually go through someone with credibility with both of them and end this thing if we get to that point, hopefully as soon as possible. And he ran through a couple names and he wasn't really sure if any of them fit the bill, said America and Biden can't really do it, given Putin's hatred for America and for Biden right now. Is there a name or two that comes to your mind that would at least be plausible for that role should that role be needed? The one person who has the ability and the good faith of the world would be Henry Kissinger. He's a terrific negotiator. He's 97 years old, but he's known Vladimir Putin for years. Putin used to come to Kissinger's apartment near the United Nations once a year and just sort of seek out his wisdom. I don't know that Kissinger is up to the job, but if there is one person that Putin would respect and that the West would respect, I think it's a Henry Kissinger who can find the offering. And remember, he's the guy who negotiated the end of the Vietnam War. So he knows how difficult it is to end these wars that no one can win, but no one wants to walk away and lose. Katie McFarland, former Trump deputy national security advisor, one of four presidents she's served in her career. Katie, always a privilege. We'll talk again soon. Shall do. Thank you, Guy. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. Saw this story. ABC News reported. That Hunter Biden, I guess, is living at a mansion in Malibu, which must be nice. And because he's getting Secret Service protection, the way that sometimes this has to work is the Secret Service needs to have an operating base right nearby. And therefore, at U.S. taxpayer expense, the Secret Service detail is renting a nearby mansion in order to protect the president's son. And the price tag for that monthly rental in Malibu, California, is $30,000 a month. Think about your rent. Think about your mortgage payment. Is it anywhere close to $30,000 a month? Now, look, I get it. If he's entitled to protection because his dad's the president, you know, you can't really begrudge someone that. And sometimes if you're living in a very expensive place, it costs more money to protect them. I get all of that. I also did wonder, is Hunter Biden necessarily in danger from any foreign powers, for example, or would they want to come knock on his door to try to hire him? Just put him on the board of something. Expertise not necessary. No one else need apply. So they can uh, get hooked up with the big guy with some meetings or what have you. Seems like that is 
part of the reason, maybe the main reason why Hunter Biden has all this money to begin with to be shelling out, in his case, 20 grand a month for a mansion in Malibu. And the millions that he made in Ukraine for an energy company or from an energy company where he has no background in energy or any of that policy or in China where he was like, you know, uh, some consultant in what made 4.8 million, I think was the number. Or maybe I could be wrong. Maybe he's got all this money because people are just snapping up his artwork like hotcakes. Millionaires rolling in. They just love his art so much that they're paying six figures for pieces. Has nothing to do with his last name or his access, of course. Last night we were talking about the Hunter Biden laptop scandal and the business entanglements and the answers from the White House and all of that. And I made my points on special report and I had lefties on Twitter mad at me. Why are you talking about this? Well, this isn't news these days. There's so much other stuff going on. They call it all fake Russian disinformation back when it was most relevant. Now the truth is coming out and they say, well, it's old news and you shouldn't be covering it. Move on to other things. Funny how that trick works, isn't it? Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour on the Guy Benson Show, our second of three, between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson from D.C. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com, a podcast of the entire program is available for your listening enjoyment, totally free of charge, on demand, after the show, every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert in our middle hour. The Dow Jones Industrial Average sliding 280 points today, closing down in the red to 34,641. As we begin our new hour, let's get to our next guest. Congressman Michael Waltz, a Republican of Florida, representing the 6th District down there. He's also a retired Green uh, Green Beret. He recently partnered with Brave Books to co-author Dawn of the Brave, which teaches kids about the importance of service and teamwork. Sounds like he's the type of guy who's well-suited to write a book like that, given his background, not just in Congress, but before that military service. I mentioned uh, Green Beret. That's serious stuff. Congressman, great to have you back. Yeah, thanks, Guy. Appreciate it. I want to start with a soundbite. This was President Zelensky addressing the United Nations Security Council earlier today, basically calling on them to either get their act together and remove Russia because Russia has a permanent seat and therefore a veto at the Security Council, making the body useless in the face of this Russian war and the, the war crimes that we're now seeing, or Zelensky said, Another alternative uh, was floated. I'll let you listen. This is cut 27. Ukraine has the, uh, the moral right to propose a reform of the world security system. We have proven that we helped others not only happy time but in dark times too. And now we need decisions from the Security Council for peace in Ukraine. If you do not know how to uh, to make this decision, you can do two things: either remove Russia 
as an aggressor and a source of war. So it cannot block decisions about its own aggression, its own war, and then do everything that we can do uh, to establish peace. Or the other option is, please show how we can uh, re reform or change, uh, dissolve yourself and, uh, and, uh, and work for peace. Or if there is no alternative and no option, then the next option would be dissolve yourself altogether. Dissolve yourselves altogether. Just get rid of the UN Security Council. If you can't function and do things that matter, why exist was sort of the point that he was making directly to the U.N. Security Council. And I have to tell you, Congressman, looking at so much of what the U.N. does and does not do and the just rife corruption, anti-Semitism and the list goes on. I do sometimes find myself wondering what is the point of that place, especially given the amount of money, the huge amount of money that the United States plows into the U.N. more than any other country by a long shot. You know, what do we get out of that exactly? Well, and and just to take a step further, Guy, right, Russia is currently on the human the U.N. Human Rights Council, right. uh, along with the likes of. Yeah, right. I mean, we don't even need to go down that list of, uh, of you know, between Venezuela, Cuba uh, and China. And what happened? China as well, uh, with an ongoing genocide uh, as yep. defined by two administrations now. But what it serves for is a vehicle for these authoritarian, dictatorial, uh, uh, atrocity-causing uh, machines uh, that are these, these regimes. It serves as a, a legitimizing uh, a vehicle for them. And so I think, uh, look, I, I love what Zelensky put on the table. Conservatives have been saying it for years. What does the what is the taxpayer benefit from the hundreds of millions of dollars that we plow into the U.N. every year? And President Trump, to his credit, looked at the WHO and said, enough, we're done. Um, there are I, in fairness, guy, I think there are uh, elements uh, of the U.N. that may be worth continuing to support. Right. But the body as a whole, uh, you nailed it. Zelensky nailed it. Uh, and I think it's a it's a it's a absolutely valid question, particularly when you've got this administration, rewind the clock back to last year, um, with the U.N. and Tony Blinken kind of kibbutzing on the U.S. apologizing uh, for, you know, for for its behavior. Our human rights egregious you know, violations. Our egregious human rights agreements. Right. Um, and it, it, we, we could go on. But but you get the message. Yeah. You had a bunch of these authoritarian despot states getting up there to lecture the United States about our problems here. I mean, it was just insulting. And, you know, I'm actually reminded now that we're having this conversation back during the George W. Bush years, John Bolton was his ambassador to the U.N. And John Bolton, had, yep. I think uh, he had, I believe, and harbored a pretty healthy contempt for the place <laughs> that he was uh, representing the United States uh, every day where he was doing that. And one thing that he had said, I believe this was prior to him getting the job and Bush had to use a recess appointment, if I recall correctly, to get him in there because the Democrats uh, were holding up the nomination. And one of the big uh, arguments they were making against him was that Bolton had said at some point that you could knock a bunch of floors off the U.N. building and it would probably be for the best for the institution. 
And that's sort of where I am, though. Like, I'm not saying that the U.N. should be totally dissolved and the U.S. should withdraw entirely unilaterally from it. But it seems like if you were to just consolidate the U.N. into a handful of tasks where they are not completely incompetent and corrupt, that would probably be a major upgrade from the United Nations as it currently exists. Because to your point, if Russia and China and Cuba and Venezuela and Libya and Sudan and the list goes on are on the Human Rights Council and countries like Iran are on the Women's Rights Council, truly, truly, what is the point of giving any legitimacy to at least those panels? And I know Trump and the previous administration pulled the U.S. out of the Human Rights Council, saying it is irreparable, it is beyond saving. We are not going to give one shred of U.S. credibility by sitting on the council with these grave serial human rights abusers. We're not going to dignify this charade, this fraud with our presence. And with great fanfare, Biden put us back into the Human Rights Council. And here we are looking at the current reality that Russia is on the Human Rights Council along with China and others. And it's like, okay, you know, what exactly did Biden achieve by doing that? Aside from just, you know, the latest, I guess, example of this, this obsession of this religious dogma of global unilateral or, or multilateralism from Democrats and also just trying to do the opposite of whatever Trump did, no matter what the implications are. I mean, I just, I wonder if they ever truly sit back, like if, if Secretary Blinken ever in a quiet moment, lying in bed at night, thinks, you know, why exactly are we doing this? Why did we get ourselves back into the Human Rights Council? Maybe Trump was right about this one thing. I just wonder if that type of reflection ever happens. No, no. It, look, it, this is, remember, you know, these were the adults coming back to be in charge. But really um, what that meant was this is the Washington establishment orthodoxy of, you know, just things that are never to be questioned. Um, not only it was it you know full membership and write blank checks to the UN, which oh by the way was established in the wake of World War II to prevent the type of atrocities that happened in World War II, and yet we're watching them unfold before our eyes. But but here nor there, whether it was questioning NATO, um, questioning uh, all of these countries in Europe where the United States has subsidized their defense where they spend hardly anything on defense and everything on their social programs. Meanwhile, we foot the bill. Uh, yeah, we, can, we can walk down the list of things that the Trump administration came in and asked just the fundamental, why are we doing this? Why are we footing the bill? Why are we subsidizing? You know, why do we have unfair uh, trade with China, Europe, and the rest of the world, Canada as well? Uh, and the Democratic establishment, you're right, one uh, reflexively did the opposite, and two, uh, went right back into old habits that you know have us where we are today. You've seen the reports. You've seen the videos and the images coming out of not just Mariupol with the shelling, but now uh, Bucha or Buka and some of these surrounding areas in Kiev with pretty serious yeah. and horrendous evidence of human rights violations, war crimes, murders, rapes. And we're seeing, of course, the condemnation roll in. That's fine. It should be condemned. It should be condemned extremely harshly. What actions should also accompany those words? And do you think the war crimes will be in some way an inflection point or a game changer? Or is it just sort of something where people 
once again feel like, you know, the Russians are being evil, but we can't really do all that much more about it. Well, I, I mean, as, as harsh as this is, uh, and it is horrific, uh, this isn't anything new uh, for the Russians. Uh, this has been their way of war from Afghanistan when they l- literally deliberately disguised landmine as, landmines as toys so that children picked them up to terrorize the families uh, to Chechnya, to Syria. I mean, just guy, just in Syria alone. Um, 54 hospitals were documented to be deliberately targeted, not incidentally, deliberately targeted. So the uh, and not to mention mass graves, uh, the use of chemical weapons and and all types of other atrocities. So this is the way the Russians fight uh, and they make up for their incompetence with sheer brute force. Uh, uh, Number one. Number two, what do we do about it? Give Zelensky and I know people are saying this, but I just want to unpack it for a second give Zelensky everything he needs to win. And we're not doing that. Uh, We are responding better. Uh, He should have had the weaponry that he asked for beforehand as a deterrent measure. Uh, And we just had a hearing today with Secretary Austin and Milley, uh, uh, General Milley, where we're saying, look, deterrence failed. And if we follow the same model, it failed against Russia and deterrence will fail against China when it comes to Taiwan. Responding uh, toughly, um, and unifying the world after entire cities are leveled doesn't do the Ukrainians and it won't do the Taiwanese any good. Give them everything they need, including and this is a policy decision that that I think Biden is dancing around. Give them what they need to win. If that means pushing Russians back completely out of Ukraine, if that means striking Russia proper, as they just did uh, with an oil supply depot, uh, will Biden then pump the brakes on that offensive weaponry? Because the fear of Putin is what's driving our policy. And I think, uh, yeah, I think this administration would be perfectly happy with a stalemate that goes to the peace table, uh, the negotiating table, even if it means Zelensky ultimately gives up even more uh, of his country. And if we do that, Guy, mark my words, five years from now, seven years from now, Putin will be back to keep taking bite-sized uh, elements out of this country. Former Green Beret and sitting Florida Congressman Michael Waltz is my guest here on The Guy Benson Show. And as I mentioned at the top, he recently partnered with Brave Books. He's co-author of Dawn of the Brave, teaching kids about service and teamwork. You can check that out. Congressman, we enjoy having you on here. Thank you. It's not exactly a happy subject here, but thank you for your insights, and we'll have you back soon. Hey, thank you, Guy. And by the way, that book's not available on Amazon. It is on bravebooks.com, and proceeds go to Samaritan's Purse. But we've got to teach our kids traditional conservative value, and thanks so much for mentioning it. And give that website one more time. Is that bravebooks.com? bravebooks.com. Bravebooks.com, not on Amazon. Proceeds to Samaritan's Purse. It's a subscription, so each month uh, the child will get a new book with, you know, family, faith, value. In my case, it's teamwork and service to country. Uh, we, we wring our hands about what our kids are being taught in schools. Let's do something about it and, and get some good conservative content in their young minds. Oh, very interesting stuff. Thanks for uh, for clarifying and, and bringing and sort of bringing to our attention exactly what this uh, subscription is about. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks for your work on that. Congressman Waltz, on The Guy Benson Show. We will take a break. We will come right back. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back.
I'm Guy Benson. This is interesting from Politico Playbook today. They had access to two focus groups that the Democrats ran featuring core Democratic base voters. So here's what they write about it. Democrats are desperately trying to understand what's roiling the electorate heading into a brutal midterm environment. I mean, they want to understand it. They could just look around. Maybe tune into this show, a few others. So there's a group called HIT Strategies, H-I-T Strategies, that conducted focus groups weekly to find out in real time how Americans are processing events in 2022. On Monday... Politico witnessed discussions with two different subgroups of partisan Democrats assembled by the firm. So one group was black base, always vote for Dems, ages 25 plus. So these are black Democrats who only vote for Democrats when they vote, and they are anywhere from 25 all the way up. The other group of base voters that were uh, gathered here and questioned in these focus groups were youth-based voters who always vote for Democrats in the range of 25 to 39, so younger Democrats. Politico writes this, there were significant differences within and between the two groups of nine voters, but there were also some broad takeaways. One, a preoccupation with inflation and crime. Even the core Democratic voters are preoccupied with inflation and crime. That is not good news for the party that runs everything in Washington, D.C., whose policies have made inflation worse and who are soft on crime. Two, exhaustion with pandemic restrictions. I mean, join the club. We've got a soundbite from Fauci that we'll play for you later this hour that might contribute to that exhaustion. Three, cynicism about politics. And you've got the base cynical about the whole process and participation. That's not necessarily a great sign when it comes to turnout. Four, deep frustration with President Joe Biden and the Democrats for failing to deliver on early promises. Five, sympathy for Ukraine. Mixed with a lack of enthusiasm for Biden, uh, for Biden rather, spending so much time and money on that issue And finally, ambiguity about how important January 6th ought to be for the Democrats in the midterms. So it sounds like they got some people in their base really still focused on January 6th, probably watching MSNBC all day, where it's like the lead story still a lot of the time. And then others who just are sort of over it, think they should move on, disagreement there and ambiguous sentiments on that. These are core Democratic voters we're talking about. Then separately, there's this from the UVA Center of Politics, or Center for Politics, I should say. Kyle Kondrick looked at some of the numbers, and he's one of their analysts, Kyle Kondrick. And he says it's been roughly five months since the Virginia and New Jersey elections that helped reveal a poor political environment for the Democrats. Since then, Biden's numbers have not gotten better. In fact, they've gotten worse. And he looks at the average approval rating that Joe Biden had leading into those elections last November. And he's several points worse today. And you extrapolate what happened in Virginia and New Jersey across the country. No wonder Democrats are very concerned. 
talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show. With me now is Seth Dillon, a buddy of mine dating back to, gosh, middle school, and now CEO of the Babylon Bee. Seth, welcome back to the show. Great to have you. Hey, man. What's up, Guy? How are you? I'm well. It's good to see you down in Florida last week in Tallahassee for that DeSantis dinner. Before we get started on real issues related to politics, something also quite real, very personal. Your dad, who is the senior pastor at my church when I was growing up for years, uh, you would put this out there on social media. He had a heart attack recently, and he fell. He hurt his head. How is he doing? Um, thank you for asking. First of all, I mean, yeah, he's he's doing remarkably well. Um, the doctors say there's no permanent damage to his heart, which is ama- an amazing thing to hear. Um, he he did get a stent in and needs another one, um, but they're letting his heart rest and recover a little bit. So he's home and feeling pretty good, and good. his head is healing. And so he's, you know, he's feeling very fortunate. Well, uh, thank God, and just please give him my best, Pastor Mitch, and his wife, your mom, Faith, and your whole family. Uh, you guys have just been in my thoughts and prayers the last couple of days. You've also had an interesting few days in your own right, Seth, uh, in your career. So the Babylon Bee and your Twitter account at the Babylon Bee is currently suspended. You can't tweet. You're in Twitter jail yep. because of a tweet you guys put out. It's a satire site, a satire uh, feed as well, and Twitter says unless you take that down— they're not going to let you tweet, so therefore you've just kind of been at this stalemate. You're not going to accede to their demands. You then heard right. from someone who is now very much in the news related to Twitter, who I guess was bothered by this, and this example, this little skirmish that you're having may have actually made him make some decisions <laughs> and sort of prompted him to do some interesting things that have definitely grabbed headlines. Tell us about Elon Musk. What happened here? Well, if you just rewind a little bit, I mean, he's he's been a fan of the bee for quite some time. And, you know, we've had some interaction with him in the past. He interacts with our content a lot when it's allowed to be posted on Twitter. Um, we interviewed him recently, and so we, we stay in touch with him. Um, and so, you know, when he found out, when he first heard that we had been suspended, um, you know, he was he wanted to confirm that that was true. So we actually reached out to our suspended account to see if, if we had, in fact, been suspended. And we couldn't reply to him because we were suspended. So um, he found uh, one of our staff members, our editor-in-chief, he found his account and and was able to reach him uh, through his account. And so um, we ended up speaking with him about the whole situation. Um, But, yeah, it's uh, it's you know, he's he's been concerned about censorship and 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 the crackdown on on expression, free expression on Twitter for some time. I don't I wouldn't for a second say that this is all due to the bee being in Twitter jail. So now Musk is going to do something about it to free the bee. I think if anything, (laughs) Um, it was the last straw. I mean, it's just kind of like he uh, there's there's been just just momentum going in this direction for so long. And he wants to see it reversed. And the bee well, you were telling jail, me think, last week we were sharing an Uber over to the governor's mansion in Tallahassee. And you were like, yeah, Elon Musk reached out to us and he's been tweeting today, asking people about whether there is a free speech problem on Twitter, suggesting that he might do something about it or maybe, you know, could potentially start his own platform or something. And so we were sort of speculating about what was going through yeah, his mind. Yeah, we didn't know. We had no idea what he was going to do. He didn't tell us his plans. You know, he's just kind of musing aloud about what he might do and then and then also talking publicly about what he might do. And so we, we just kind of like sat on that and we were wondering, you know, maybe maybe he'll take some action. Maybe he won't. We were hopeful that maybe he would because otherwise we're left waiting for Congress to act or, or waiting for, you know, the Supreme Court to get a hold of a case where they – 
interpret Section 230 to see if it's, you know, should be interpreted as broadly as it has been by lower courts. This could be a very long wait is the point. And then what happened for people people who didn't see the news, what happened? Um, So, I mean, what ended up happening was Musk, uh, it it came out. Yeah, it actually uh, his his purchase of this of this stock and Twitter was disclosed publicly. He has, you know, a certain amount of time. The SEC allows him to, to disclose this stuff and he's got to get it out there. Um, so he disclosed that he bought 9.2% of the company, making him the largest single shareholder in Twitter, uh, which is just astonishing. It's a, it's a multi-billion dollar acquisition for him. Um, and now he's got a board seat. That was just announced earlier this morning. So, um, yeah, he's, he's definitely getting actively involved, and he's tweeting about how he wants to see some positive changes on Twitter in the near future. So he's, he wants to make a difference. And you know what? If, if, uh, if our content being sidelined and us refusing to get out of Twitter jail by deleting the tweet ourselves played any role in this, then that's pretty cool for us. I mean, it's definitely cool. And so, as you mentioned, he's now the single largest shareholder in the world of Twitter. He spent billions of dollars, I guess. It's been a pretty good return on that investment so far for him in terms of just the dollar amount. He's got a seat on the board. I saw the CEO tweeting, sort of welcoming him to the board. There's also some reporting about people inside Twitter freaking out, furious that this has been allowed to happen, talking about resigning or leaving. And I feel like that would be, to use a term that they love out there in Silicon Valley, a disruption that would be welcome in my view. Yeah, I I think it would be welcome. I mean, there's a lot of the people there that want to quit just because someone like him has a little bit of influence. You know, he values he calls himself a free speech absolutist. If you want to quit because someone like that is on the board, then then see you later. You know, Um, I think it would be much healthier if there was Twitter has this problem where they basically baked into their terms of service uh, the need for ideological conformity. You have to agree with a lot of their fundamental, you know, uh, philosophical beliefs, uh, ones that, beliefs that they almost hold like with religious conviction, um, or else you're not allowed on the platform, and that's just that's just crazy. So, any if anybody's opposed to uh, Musk coming in and maybe kind of balancing that out a little bit, um, you know, so long, Sayonara. Yeah, I think the sort of the, the tantrums are interesting. They are revealing. Last question, Seth. I don't know if you saw this, but the Miami Herald has a piece out going after Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, we've mentioned him, saying that he's been raising money using a fake news site. Then you click on the link, and the fake news site is the Babylon Bee, a satire site. Oh, they've got him this yeah. time, Seth. 30 seconds. <laughs> well, I am just being made aware of this. I've, I've been kind of out and about busy all day. I did get an email from somebody making me aware that they had done a report on this, and they had actually asked my comments, and I missed it. Um, but yeah, I mean, they've done some, they've done some advertising with us. Uh, big deal. I mean, it's just, they're, they're trying to turn it into a story when it's not. No, I mean, so fake news site. He decries fake news, but he's raising money through fake news. It's a satire site with some advertising. That's the story. What a scoop, Miami Herald. Nailed it. Seth Dillon, CEO of the Babylon Bee. Always appreciate it. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, guy. You bet. And best to your dad. We will take a quick break. We'll come right back. Mask Madness continued. That's next. The CDC has been very clear, as you've indicated, that in fact, if things turned around and you have a rather substantial uptick in cases that is associated with an increase in hospitalizations, the CDC might turn around 
that recommendation and say, we've got to go back to indoor masks. I think there's going to be a lot of pushback on the part of the American public in doing that, although it would be the prudent thing to do. It's the Guy Benson Show. There's a voice that we haven't heard on the program in a while, actually. Dr. Anthony Fauci warning just a few days ago that maybe the CDC would reverse course and bring back the masks indoors, which would be the prudent thing to do, he says, if there was an uptick in cases and hospitalizations moving forward in some future wave or something like that. And so I want to come back to the issue of masking because it's not over yet. This is a live issue. If it's a live issue for Dr. Fauci in his head, and it's a live issue at the CDC where they might bring back these types of restrictions in the future, then it's a live issue for us. And on that front, let's listen to this together. This was at an event in D.C. at a school yesterday. Vice President Kamala Harris showed up. It was an elementary school, young kids, and there were a bunch of them on stage there to greet her. And she greeted them. Listen. have a seat. Thank you. Thank you, Miss Trina. (laughs) I am so happy to be surrounded by our young leaders. Okay, that's enough. Uh, So she's at the school. She's so happy to be surrounded by the young leaders. And the young leaders, these little kids, are all wearing masks. She is surrounded by masked children. Now, she herself, an adult, is not masked, but the kids standing around her all are. There is no science behind any of that, none. And you kind of think that at some point, now that we've seen these types of photographs taken and circulated before, whether it's Governor Hochul in New York or all of the nonsense out in California with Gavin Newsom, there should be something in the brain of a politician where you're surrounded, I mean, Stacey Abrams down in Georgia in that classroom, sitting there with a big smile, sitting cross-legged with all the kids massed all around her. You would think there'd be something that goes off in a politician's brain, like danger, warning. I'm an adult not wearing a mask, which is fine. I don't think we should be having people wearing masks, not requiring them certainly to wear masks. But if you're the adult wearing no mask and you just recognize there's a bunch of little kids around you who are being forced for some reason to do it, that is a photograph. That is an image that is not going to sit well with a hell of a lot of people. Now, are you telling me that Kamala Harris might not be good at politics and optics? Perish the thought. But there's the latest example of the vice president. There was another one. Eric Adams, the mayor in New York City, his government in the city announced, we told you about this a few days ago, that they are going to continue to recommend slash require masking only for children two to five. The group that needs masking the least, even if you believe in masking at all, because I think there's no evidence at all for school masking, for example, within any age range. That's the data, and we've flogged that horse repeatedly on the show. I guess we have to flog it some more because a lot of people still in charge of school districts across the country still, in some cases, aren't getting it. But the younger the kid, the safer they are from COVID. 
and the more damage masks actually do to them, to their development, to their psyche, to their progress, emotionally, academically, etc. But in New York City, everyone can go around without a mask on unless you're a two, three, four, or five-year-old. And then you have to wear a mask if you're at daycare or preschool or kindergarten. It's crazy. Meanwhile, Eric Adams, a grown adult, he's been filmed at some indoor club dancing. He was gallivanting around on some red carpet, loving his life, although he got heckled on that red carpet. Cut 20. That's some very high-quality heckling, by the way, right there. That woman's voice just penetrates through the din. Why do you get to take your mask off but the kids don't? Who the bleep do you think you are? Now, I'm not sure we're going to endorse screaming F-bombs at politicians on this show, but the anger and the frustration is real and justified because the policy makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. It is punitive, it is anti-science, and it is the law in New York City. Why does the adult mayor of New York City get to walk around doing whatever he wants without a mask on, but three-year-olds don't? Adams was also confronted during some sort of press event. Someone showed up and was pressing him on this issue. A mother, cut 21, this is a woman named Daniela Jample. Hi, Mr. Mayor. Three weeks ago, you told parents to trust you, that you would unmask our toddlers. Ten days ago, you stood right here and you said that... The, the masks would come off on April 4th. That has not happened. You reneged on your promise, and not only did you renege okay, on your Okay, so promise, this goes on, and they have an exchange back and forth. It turns out that Daniela Jample is a city employee who confronted the mayor. It sounded relatively polite there. She was calling him out for broken promises on this issue, wanting answers, demanding accountability. She didn't really get that, but she did get fired from that job for the city. Now, you might say if you work for the city and then you show up and sort of sandbag the mayor of that city with questions, you might be putting your job at risk. Right. Maybe you could make an argument that's not a smart thing to do. Maybe she had that outcome coming to her. But I find it interesting because New York City under Mayor Adams is out there paying for billboards down in the state of Florida. And the billboards are just covered. These ads are covered with the word gay, 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 gay. And it's an ad for New York encouraging people to leave Florida and, quote, come to the city where you can say whatever you want. Now, I would imagine based on what's actually in and not in the law in question down in Florida, folks like Ron DeSantis might think any Floridian who actually believes that they can't say the word gay anymore in Florida, they are more than welcome to move to New York City. There hasn't been a lot of out-migration from Florida up to New York. It's been all the other direction. But if you really believe that now you can't say gay in Florida, by all means, move to New York. You'll fit right in. I find it interesting, by the way, that apparently, since Eric Adams is super against that law in Florida, and I have problems with it, 
for reasons that I've explained. I also support major parts of it. It seems like Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, believes that you can't say gay in Florida, so come to New York. And in New York, if you have a five-year-old in kindergarten, that person should be, that kid should be instructed about gender identity in the classroom. But that five-year-old, while getting sexual orientation and gender identity instruction in kindergarten in New York City, at least that little kid will be wearing a mask in New York. Isn't that a fun combination of policies? So you've got Harrison, D.C. with that little vignette. You've got Adams in New York, and I guess this one critic getting fired. And last but not least, you've got Ana Navarro, who is a left-wing commentator who does The View. I think she might do CNN. I don't know if she still does that anymore. I don't really follow her career that closely. But she's a big masker, a lot of scolding people not for masking, and her sort of like, you know, snapping approach to quick little snarky commentary. Just blowing up people who aren't following the rules. Well, she was photographed on an airplane. I'll let you guess. In first class, not following the rules. Just sitting there with no mask on. Not eating, not drinking, just sitting there. Again, I don't care. I think the mask mandates on planes are dumb. But that's not her position. And you might say that maybe she had just had a snack or something, so we should give her the benefit of the doubt. I generally like to give people the benefit of the doubt. I don't think she's really earned it because she never gives anyone that she's criticizing the benefit of any doubt. She preens and demagogues shamelessly. And without getting into details, she is one of the rudest people I have ever encountered in this business, ever. So if she's going to get called out for this and exposed, you know what? I'm, I'm here for it. Thanks for helping the cause, Anna final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. We've got more on Florida still to come, plus Juan Williams and more. Stay with us. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our happy hour here on this Tuesday on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free on demand every day right there. GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And the happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. I saw on their social media they've got a new ad out that they're running because they really are going national, expanding significantly And it's a great product, really delicious beverage, 21 plus only, always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com. That's their website. You can see where they're sold near you. You can also order online, thelongdrink.com. So a week ago today, I was down in Tallahassee, Florida. We interviewed Governor Ron DeSantis in his office face-to-face for almost an entire hour of this program. It spanned three different segments, and we got into a lot of different issues, It was a wide-ranging exchange. I appreciated it, and many of you did as well. We got a lot of feedback on that interview. 
And if you missed it, it's available on that podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. It was Tuesday's show, again, a week ago. And one of the things that I said leading up to that interview on that day's program was one of the reasons I was so intrigued to have that conversation with DeSantis is because we've talked about him a lot on this show in the last few years, largely because he is constantly the focus of attacks, often smears from some combination of the Democratic Party, the activist left and the journalism media establishment. And often there's very little daylight between those different groups. They work together in many cases. And at one point I mused that it kind of felt like these attacks come almost on a daily basis against DeSantis. And it's really not much of an exaggeration. And here's the latest one that I wanted to address. And I did so on Monday. This was a piece at townhall.com yesterday based on a line of criticism that had picked up steam over recent days. It stemmed from a piece in the Palm Beach Post, which is a local paper down in South Florida. It also got picked up by USA Today. And then a lot of blue checkmark lefty media types started excitedly sharing it. So it was making the rounds, as they say. And whenever there's an opportunity... To get DeSantis, whether it is based on anything reasonable and real or not, there is a large segment of that world that wants to get it into the bloodstream as quickly as possible. And I've said before, I'll say it again, I think it's because they are afraid of him and their threat that they perceive to power. Embodied in him, should he go national, run for president, something like that. And so his original sin was winning in Florida. He was supposed to lose based on the polls. He won. He beat a media darling and favorite, a socialist, who they were all expecting to prevail in 2018, a major blue wave year, but not in Florida. Then he built, DeSantis did, big approval ratings in that state, a swing state. That was disconcerting to them. Then COVID came and they thought it was their chance to take him out And they have tried every single step of the way, often with contradictory attacks, which actually comes into play here in what I'm about to tell you. It's like throw anything against the wall and see what sticks to try to stop Ron DeSantis. Not really working that well. There was a new poll out last week that we told you about 59 percent approval rating for the governor in Florida, including 59 percent of an approval rating on the issue of handling covid, which is where they've really tried to gut him politically. And he's leading comfortably in that survey over both leading Democratic would-be opponents. So here comes this new critique, which is, and I saw a number of people highlighting it, Jonathan Chait, other DeSantis haters out there. Oh, look, USA Today, Palm Beach Post, this story shows that Florida has been exaggerating and overcounting their vaccination numbers, especially among seniors. Now, let's just pause for a moment. We know that Florida has actually fairly decent statistics on COVID deaths, the death rate, when age adjusted. They have one of the oldest populations in the country, a lot of seniors down there. 
when you look at excess deaths overall, which is maybe like the broadest metric you can really consider on COVID, Florida is exactly at the national average and outperforming a lot of blue states like California. That's even with a disproportionately older or more elderly population, therefore much more vulnerable to this disease, to this virus. And in the same breath that people say that Ron DeSantis has been anti-vaccine, anti-vax, now they're also accusing him of exaggerating the vaccination numbers. He's so anti-vax that he's exaggerating how many vaccines they've administered. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Now, DeSantis is not anti-vax. He personally got vaccinated. He appeared on national television repeatedly with senior citizens as they got vaccinated to encourage other people to do that. He gave detailed answers at press conferences about why the vaccines save lives and keep people out of the hospital. We've given you all of this evidence. We've played you sound bites of this on the air. Now, did he focus less on the vaccine as time wore on? Yes. Could he have done more moving forward? I think he could have, although I also understand at some point he felt like they had hit a critical mass and beating that same drum over and over again had diminishing returns. So he moved on to other things like monoclonal antibody treatments and other therapeutics that could also save lives. And he was criticized for that stuff, too, before the criticism was walked back, not really walked back, but it got muted because it turned out that these were successful treatments that even the Biden White House was endorsing. They attacked the guy for everything. They went after him for prioritizing seniors in the first place on vaccines. Because for a brief period of time, that was not CDC guidance. So it was anti-science. Then it became the science because it was obviously the right thing to do. He was ahead of the curve on that, but they went after him on that. They went after him on being too effective at handing out the vaccines and setting it up at one of the most popular locations all across the state, Publix. They tried to pretend that that was some sort of example of pay-for-play corruption. 60 Minutes joined in on that smear, and it all fell apart. He even had Democratic leaders in the state saying, no, this is absolutely not what happened. And we dismantled that on this show. That was a year ago, by the way, this week. One year ago was the 60 Minutes garbage. Right, So they're just bouncing all over the place. He hates the vaccines. He's an anti-vaxxer. He's doing too many vaccines. Why is he doing seniors first? Why is he doing this with Publix now? Oh, he's exaggerating the number of vaccines, even though he hates the vaccine, right? It's kind of incoherent when you take it all together because coherence isn't the point. The point is Ron DeSantis bad. Ron DeSantis threat. Get Ron DeSantis. That's it. So when you scratch at this latest one, just a little bit, just ever so slightly beneath the headline. Florida overcounts vaccinations by 600,000 people. Snowbirds responsible analysis shows. So the argument is that Florida padded its stats on vaccinations by 600,000 because you have people who come down to Florida for their winters, people who live in colder locations, They have a condo or something down in Florida. They come down there, and maybe some of those people, it appears, were counted as a Florida-vaccinated person when they might have been vaccinated in another state. 
I would also point out that there were a hell of a lot of seniors in particular who couldn't get their vaccines in other states, blue states, and came to Florida to get vaccinated there. So you have freedom of movement. You have people with multiple homes and addresses. There are a lot of complicating factors here. But the implication is, the accusation here seems to be, Florida cooked the books again, right? They claim this on the deaths, which wasn't true. Zero evidence, totally made up. Unlike New York, where it actually happened, Cuomo actually did what they accused DeSantis of doing. So those conspiracy theories were put to bed. But now they're saying he's cooking the books in the other direction by overcounting the vaccinations because of these snowbirds that fell into the Florida column, even though they shouldn't have. And one of the key bullet points on this story was more than 100 Florida zip codes report more than 100 percent of their residents are vaccinated. So you have zip codes across the state where you have more than 100 percent, 100 percent plus of the residents in that zip code counted as vaccinated, which obviously mathematically doesn't work out. And therefore, Florida is lying and they've overcounted their vaccination numbers. And they took all this credit for doing so well on vaccine numbers with seniors, but they were just counting some seniors, like double counting them who may have gotten their shots out of state, these snowbirds who came down. Now, Florida did do a hell of a job getting their seniors vaccinated. And yes, when you look at the CDC numbers, Florida does in fact count more than 100% of their seniors as vaccinated, which needless to say is not possible. You only have 100% of people. In a certain category, you can't have, as is the case in Florida, 105 percent of their 65 plus population vaccinated. That is a fair point to make about a flaw in the data. However, is it a scandal? Is it something nefarious? Is it unusual? If you zoom out just a little bit, the answer becomes clear and the answer is no. Because of the factors that I just mentioned, people moving around, people having multiple addresses or multiple properties or what have you, and based on the way these statistics were compiled across the country, really on the fly in the middle of a crisis, a majority of American states list their 65-plus population at more than 100% vaccinated. Florida is not at all unusual in this regard. 29 out of the 50 states in the CDC numbers have more than 100 percent of their seniors vaccinated, which, again, can't be true in any of those states. And there's some of this cross-pollination. When you look at that list, just to pick a few states out at random, this is the CDC data. Phil Kirpin, a policy wonk, sent this over to me. I tweeted about it. I wrote about it. Connecticut, deep blue state, Connecticut. They report 116% of their senior citizens are at least partially vaccinated. 116% of them. Rhode Island, also 116%. Washington, D.C., 114%. Delaware, president's home state, 111%. New Jersey, 108%. I didn't see a big flurry of social media action attacking the Democratic governors of Connecticut, Rhode Island, Delaware, New Jersey, or Mayor Bowser for cooking the books and exaggerating their numbers. I didn't see big hit pieces on any of the other 28 states 
that have this exact same phenomenon. No, it was Florida at 105 percent. Apparently, that is the unique problem here. The scandal, the lies of Ron DeSantis. Don't mind those other 28 states. Certainly not the blue states that have the exact same thing that's happened in many cases, even more pronounced than in Florida. It is always Florida that's the problem. I wonder why that is. It's such a coincidence. It's such a mystery, is it not? I reached out to the Department of Health in Florida and their agency press secretary, Jeremy Redfern, provided me with a statement that I published at townhall.com. He said this is, of course, a, quote, nothing burger. He said people have noted these CDC numbers that I just recapitulated for you. He said that didn't become a national issue. He also pointed out that, according to the Los Angeles Times, California also has over 100 zip codes with 100 percent or more of their residents vaccinated. Same exact stat in California as in Florida. But you didn't see a huge groundswell of anger among the journo class against Gavin Newsom, did you, on this point? The spokesman at this Department of Health in Florida says that his agency gets vaccination data from a group called Florida Shots. That's the database. It is a responsibility of healthcare providers to put patient data into the system, and those data include the addresses of anyone that received a vaccine. So they're just going about their business. The numbers are off for the same reasons, based on the same functions and quirks that explain why they're off in most states. But it's been highlighted in Florida because there's a utility politically to do so. And people are actually saying that this is proof that Ron DeSantis is truly not just a liar, but an anti-vaccine liar because he was exaggerating the vaccination levels. In a way that, as I will once again reiterate, was not unusual or scandalous at all. You can make the case that perhaps all of those 29 states might want to clean up their numbers or make a better effort at it, even though there's, I think, a lot of complicating factors. You can also make the case that that could be really tough to do because of those complicating factors. And maybe it's not really worth it at this stage in the pandemic. Going back and doing a deep dive on whether vaccination stats were not properly counted. Obviously, they weren't in a bunch of states. You cannot, however, make a case that Florida is special or unique or unusually scandalous in this realm, in this regard, because the numbers clearly state otherwise. But that's not the point. The facts, the context, the statistics are all jettisoned in favor of a narrative, a narrative that is very familiar at this point. I repeat, Ron DeSantis bad, Ron DeSantis threat, get Ron DeSantis. They've tried again here and the attack has fallen flat on its face based on the facts once again. We'll take a break. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. More after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next.
happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. So this came out a few hours ago today. Chad Pergram, our colleague over on Capitol Hill at Fox News, he noted that the U.S. Capitol Police had put out a bulletin that there were multiple reports of people on the Capitol grounds, just steps from where we're broadcasting, who have been bitten by a fox. There's a fox around Capitol Hill that I guess is like jumping out and biting people. I don't know if this is like tourists that he's going after or lawmakers that this fox is attacking. One encounter was at the Botanic Garden. Another encounter was on the house side of Capitol Hill near the foundation of the building. So they're like, be on the lookout for this fox around the U.S. Capitol. And our colleague, Quiet Wyatt, suggested that this story was quite literally a Fox News alert. Happy Hour continues with Juan Williams joining me next on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. I am Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Always glad to have you here. Podcast free every day. And with us now is Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist at The Hill, and author of multiple books, including, most recently, What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? Juan, welcome back to the show. My pleasure, Guy. Good to be with you. Well, opening day for Major League Baseball is very soon. What is your prognosis, what is your prediction for your Washington Nationals this year? Uh, The dumpster. (laughs) I think think we're going to be cellar-dwellers. Uh, I really, you know, one of the things that struck me about the lockout and the negotiations that took place was that the players folded quickly, Guy. And the reason I am upset about that is I think it means the owners get away with not being highly competitive. They don't feel the need to compete every year to put the best possible product on the field. And right now, uh, the Nationals claim to be in rebuild mode, um, you know, they have Juan Soto, who's a fabulous player. Um, but what's around him uh, is not much. And so I just hope that maybe, you know, next year, as they used to say in Brooklyn, wait till next year. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you'll be surprised, but probably not. <laughs> it could be a long summer in yeah. Washington, D.C. for Nats fans. And I'm a Yankees fan. I'm sort of expecting more of the same, which is to say, like, pretty good, but not really good enough. That's but I'm expecting we shall see. And there's no easing into the regular season for Yankees fans or Red Sox fans because the Yankees and Red Sox open the season playing each other in the Bronx. Right. So it's like, all right, here we go. We're back at it with this rivalry renewed. Uh, that first game for the Yankees and Red Sox is Thursday afternoon. Juan, I want to ask you on the politics side of things to comment on this Supreme Court confirmation battle. Really hasn't been all that much of a battle Uh, The outcome has been pretty obvious from the beginning, as I mentioned in our opening hour here today. But that was all sewn up with a bow on top within the last day or two with a handful of Republicans announcing that they're going to vote in favor of the nomination of Judge Jackson to become Justice Jackson. And that's expected to happen just a matter of days from right now. Just generally your thoughts on that. I have a few other questions for you, but I want to give you the first word. Well, history is the first word here, Guy. Uh, There's never been a black woman on the Supreme Court. Uh, It's incredible to say, given that we're, you know, 200 and some years into this and, you know, hundreds of Supreme Court justices in a country uh, where we've had black people all along. So we've had two black men, Thurgood Marshall, Clarence Thomas. 
and we've had a Latina, uh, Judge Sotomayor, uh, but we've never, and we've had white women, obviously, beginning with Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, but even so, it's, I think there are five white women or five women total and the two black men, but never a black woman. So I think uh, as we approach this moment, there's no getting away from history's, uh, you know, perspective, the historical perspective here that says something something changed in this moment, something very important. And I think something very gratifying for all of those who are, you know, believe in American greatness and America making progress on the racial front, which is a, such an essential part of our American story. Uh, the second thing I would say to you on this is that in the immediate context that you and I deal in, which is, you know, things like confirmation hearings, you know, post-nomination of the first black woman, you know, I read people, you know, from George Will to, you know, in the Washington Post, Brett Stevens in the New York Times, others who said, you know, in normal times, this would be a 100 to nothing confirmation vote. But we live in such polarized times that we go through confirmation hearings that I think were sort of awful, uh, you know, involving things totally erroneous, made-up conspiracy theories and charges, child porn and the like. To me, it's denigrating to a woman whose qualifications are without questions, even in the world of conservative, leading conservative thinkers. Nobody thinks that there's any justification for this other than to make a play to base politics on the right, to say, yeah, I, I went after her or I didn't vote for her. But it's not about really a confirmation hearing with regard to her qualifications, the way that she thinks, the way that she addresses the law, and whether so kind or of like not Kavanaugh. she's a faithful steward of the law. Kind I'm of sorry. like Kavanaugh, just without the gang rape allegations. No, I think this is something more extreme because, you know, really? to me, yeah, I think that you can bring up, oh, you know, so the left didn't treat our nominee fairly, whatever, back and, back and forth. But that's, to me, you know, a lot of this, the left can say it starts with the denial of an opportunity to even have a hearing for Merrick Garland. So, you know, it goes back and forth. All I wanted to say on that second point was we live in such polarized times that you can get lost in the weeds about, well, you didn't treat my guy right. I didn't treat, you know, or what about that allegation? I, I, let's not get into that. I just want to say, for the record, we should have hearings in which we actually discuss the law, the Supreme Court, and its function, which is essential yeah. in American society. No, I, I agree with that. And, and what we might disagree on, Juan, is where this all started and who's primarily responsible. And I could do, and I have done hours on this before. The fact is we are where we are. I mostly blame the Democrats. It takes two to tango, but overall I think the arc has been quite clear. But here's the thing. To your point, I would also argue that in years past, Amy Coney Barrett would have been confirmed roughly 100 to zero as well. Instead, she got zero Democratic votes and all the Republican votes. And now it looks like uh, justice to be Jackson will get three Republican votes, but that's it. This is kind of the way things are today because in the polarized time, to use your term, which I think is correct, it's no longer about is this person qualified? Does this person have the intellect, the CV, the qualifications to do the job and the character? It's about is this person also likely to render judgments and rulings that we agree with? And 
if the answer is going to be no, you'll have the opposite party lining up overwhelmingly to vote against that person. And whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, I see arguments on both sides. I generally think that it's probably a more toxic, unhealthy thing to have moved in that direction. But it is where we are. That's the destination. I still think that's different than either implying or outright stating that in this case with Judge Jackson, it's about race and it's just Republicans who are racist who don't trust any black women. And therefore, they're voting no because of her sex and her skin color, as opposed to just ideology. I wonder what you think of that line of argument, which I think is sort of demagogic, people saying, oh, opponents of the nomination are dabbling in or just embracing sexism and racism. Well, I don't think it's easy to ignore the fact that it's all white men up there on the Republican side. Uh, you know, I guess uh, Marsha Blackburn, I think it may be on that committee. Maybe there's one white woman, but all white people on the Republican side, overwhelmingly white Republican Party. So, you know, race is part of the polarization that we think and talk about. And there's just, you know, you look at the kind of culture wars arguments that are going on in the society. Tim Scott's voting no, right? Ted Cruz is voting no. I'm just, I'm giving examples of people of color who are also voting no based on ideology. Like, do you think Tim Scott is a no? on Judge Jackson because he doesn't trust black women, or for another reason? No, I think you asked a more general question about the Republican Party. And, you know, to me, this is, in general, I think you're right that this is about an argument of Republicans versus Democrats ideology, not specifically because she's a black woman. But as I said to you at the very start of this conversation, there's no ignoring the history of the first black woman. Sure. There's no no getting away from it, and there's no getting away from the fact that the Republican Party is an overwhelmingly white male party in this day and age. That's you know the country's growing more diverse. The Republican Party is growing more white. It's it's well, it's kind of well, not shocking. really, Juan. Right? The, Trump even made major gains among Hispanics and black men in particular. Right? Things have been moving in a different direction on some of this stuff. I mean, no, I am not perfectly happy to say what's true. You know, What's, what's true is that Trump did better in 2020 among blacks, and especially black and Hispanic men, than he did in 2016. That's separate from, is the Republican Party becoming more diverse? No, it's becoming wider. Well, I think that based on the electorate and what we saw in 2020 and the polling that we're seeing now, and actually the results in places like Virginia and New Jersey – There were significant gains for Republicans among non-white communities as well. So I'm not sure I agree with that assertion. I guess we'll get more data on it in a matter of months here come November. But I think as we saw from a number of Republican senators, they put out statements announcing that they will be opposing Judge Jackson's confirmation while also acknowledging the significance of this historical moment and sort of congratulating her on that. Ben Sass did that. Tim Scott did that. Uh, Roy Blunt did that. I think it's fair to hold both of those thoughts in your head, saying congratulations on this. This is a moment in our history for all the obvious reasons. Also, for these bona fide legitimate reasons, A, B, and C, I can't lend my vote to this confirmation, especially in the current climate. I think that that's a balance that is totally defensible. Do you agree? No, my gosh, I think it's horrible. What they're saying is, we know you're qualified. We know you've earned this position. We know you have more experience on the federal bench than most of the people already on the court. 
but because of the politics involved, because of our base, uh, you know what we can't we can't approve a Democrat. It's unbelievable. It's really sad. I think you even. No, but it's not guy, unbelievable. It's, you it's don't totally think that believable. This is a good thing. I don't think that is a good phenomenon, but I also don't think it is a reflection on any sort of animus on their part. I think it's a reflection of the direction in which these fights have gone, exemplified by the most recent Supreme Court battle, where, again, an extremely qualified woman, Amy Coney Barrett, got zero votes from the Democrats. None. Well, I don't think she's even in the league with Brown Jackson, but let me just say to the larger point, something I think we agree on, which is that what what we are seeing here is that the conservative and Republican uh, voice in the country has long had a concern with the court. I think going back to mid-century when the court was involved with Brown v. Board of Education and desegregating schools, but you know, progressing through things like you know press rights, gay rights, prisoner rights. To say, oh, you know, why are all these rights coming through the courts? We want judges on the courts who are going to rule in a more conservative, limited fashion. And I think that's what's driving this conversation for the last half century in American life. And so they don't want a judge who is saying, look, the living Constitution says that Americans should have rights, individual rights, and protect. No, they're saying, let's, you know, leave it to the states on abortion. Leave it to the states with regard to transgender people. Right. These are disagreements. These are fundamental disagreements. I think they used to be papered over and people would vote anyway in favor of someone who they were going to disagree with on the bench and weren't going to like their rulings, but they were qualified, which is why you got, you know, Scalia, what was it, 98 to nothing. RBG, I think, was 96 to three. Even Sonia Sotomayor got nine Republican votes. Kagan got five Republican votes. Gorsuch got three Democratic votes. Kavanaugh got one Democratic vote and Barrett got zero. So there's been uh, there has been a trajectory here, Juan. And this is something of a continuation of that trajectory. You and I might agree that it's not a great thing, but I also think some of the motives being attributed here are unfair. And there's a blind spot, I think, on the other side where it's like, oh, we're mad when the other party does it. But when we do it, it's justified. And I think that might be a common denominator in our politics these days. Last word to you, Juan. Well, I think you're wrong. I think a lot of those people that you just mentioned who are now on the court were really put there uh, as a result of litmus test on abortion. Uh, I think they were political partisans. I think they were selected right because of their political beliefs uh, by the Republican presidents. Uh, you know, so that's part of this. Really? Yeah. You don't I think, think you don't think the Democrats do this, Juan? You think just the Republicans vet people for ideology? It just happens that all the liberals no, on the court always vote together I, on everything. No, no, I didn't say that. I said politics, that these were political partisans selected by organizations like the Federalist Society, you know, by litmus test qualifications. How how do they view abortion and replacing, uh, you know, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg with an Amy Coney Barrett? Because they say, yes, we're replacing a pro-abortion vote with an anti-abortion vote. To me, I don't I just think that's just not good. It's not good for America, not good for the credibility of the Supreme Court, one of our three branches of government. Okay, well, I think a lot of the people that we just mentioned, from Sotomayor to Kagan to all three of Trump's picks and now to Jackson, I think they're all qualified. 
I think they're all smart. I think they come at the law very differently, and therefore you get different outcomes. And each party supports judges for some of those reasons. And that is not unique to the Republicans or to the Democrats. It's not like the Republicans pick partisans, but the Democrats just pick good judges that happen to be liberal on everything. I am not going to agree on that premise yet again, Juan. But even when we disagree here, we appreciate your time. Thanks for dropping by. All right. Thank you, guy. And we'll be back with the home stretch right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. They go to Love. Love's going to be the one to take it. Puts up the shot. It's off. The game is over. And Kansas completes the biggest championship comeback. All time. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show, an abbreviated home stretch, GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. That was Jim Nance on TBS calling the final shot with UNC trying to tie it last night, down three late against Kansas. The Jayhawks walk away with their fourth national title in program history, another ring for Bill Self. And congratulations to Jayhawks fans everywhere, especially my father-in-law and his friends, Rock Chalk Jayhawk, big comeback, as you heard there in the call. They were down 15 points at halftime. I mean, it was looking pretty bleak. They were not playing well at all. And then they just turned it on in the second half, a really strong defensive effort. And it was the biggest comeback in a championship game ever. The previous record had been 10 points down. This was 15 points down, and they win by three. And you could see some of the shots on live TV of the total madness inside Allen Fieldhouse back in Lawrence, Kansas, with all the fans there storming onto the court and going crazy, those who couldn't make it down to New Orleans for the Final Four. And I simply have to point out that I, too, was at Allen Fieldhouse this year for the very first time. I was at Kansas's win over Baylor, a very decisive and convincing win at home. I had never been to Allen Fieldhouse, their arena, before. It was a Christmas gift from my in-laws. So we went out. I saw Kansas win. And just, what, weeks later, they are national champions. And this does remind me, I must say, of 2021 last year when I threw out the first pitch at an Atlanta Braves game over the summer. They weren't playing that well. Then they won that night. They won again the next night when I was there. And they went on to win the World Series, the Atlanta Braves. Benson brings championships, ladies and gentlemen. That's the obvious lesson here. Now, if that would only apply to my own teams, (laughs) that's been sort of more of a struggle. Back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show, Wednesday edition coming your way. Until then, have a great night. We will talk to you then on the Guy Benson Show.
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.